Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today I have two guests, Dustin Benge, who's Provost of Union School of Theology in Wales in the United Kingdom, and Nate Pikovich, who's Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire, in the United States. And we're talking to Dustin and Nate today about their new book, The American Puritans, just published by Reformation Heritage Books 2020. Uh, Dustin and Nate, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we Thank start, you for covering. Before we start talking about the book, would you mind telling us a little bit about your backgrounds and what brought you to this project? What, what, what brought you together to write this project? And also what gave you an interest in the American Puritans? Dustin, maybe we'll start with you. Well, thank you for uh, having us on today, Crawford. It's a delight to speak with you. Um, at the moment, I'm now sitting in Wales uh, in the UK. I had no idea just even a year ago that I would be in the uh, motherland, as it were, of the same guys that we write about, uh, the same women we write about in the American Puritans. Uh, so it's actually a delight to be here. Currently, I'm the provost at Union School of Theology, in Bridge End, Wales. Um, I originally grew up in Kentucky, so um, a southern state, as you can hear from my accent. Uh, I'm losing just a little bit of that, but I'm never going to sound quite as English or Scottish or Irish as I would like to sound, but um, maybe I'll lose some of that southern. We can but probably anyway, arrange some elocutions yeah. lessons for you if you want. <laughs> that that would be fantastic. That That would be fantastic. So um, I came to the Puritans personally quite early on in my own uh, kind of study of Jonathan Edwards, even though he's outside of kind of Puritan proper era. Um, but it was through Edwards that I was introduced to a host of the English Puritans. And, um, and then Nate and I began to have discussions um, through social media. We met. Uh, became very dear friends. We are currently very dear friends, and uh, we talk often, and we just started talking one day about um, New England Puritanism, or as we have called them, as Perry Miller calls them, the American Puritans, a group of men and women that were relatively unknown. Um, of course, we're thankful for all the work that's been done over the past 50, 75 years to explore the Puritan movement, However, it became our conviction that the first 100 or so years of American church history, specifically with regard to this particular era, is largely overlooked. So we read about it in academic textbooks, uh, but very few people are really telling the human stories of um, key figures, William Bradford, John Winthrop, uh, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, and others and so they're largely forgotten. Originally, you may be interested to know that our recommended title was the Forgotten Puritans. 
because this is a group of men and women who have just completely fallen off the scene and been quite eclipsed by other towering figures uh, in England. And so, therefore, our book, we wanted to do something quite popular level, introducing these key figures of American Puritanism and really the hopes that it will reintroduce our audience to the faith and really the trials of these early settlers. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how we came to the book, uh, was basically through friendship and a mutual love for the Puritans. That's great. And Nate, if we can pass across to you, could you explain to us a little bit of what the experience was like of writing together? Practically, um, as a writing duo, how did you go about planning and then executing what could be quite a complicated project? Sure, that's a great question. So, um, as Dustin mentioned, you know, we've been friends for uh, just you know several years. I'd say probably four or five years at this point. Um, but my, I grew up in New Hampshire, and New Hampshire, where I live, is about two hours north of Boston, Massachusetts, and about two and a half hours from Plymouth. And so, we literally live in the the backyard of the Puritans, uh, the Pilgrims, if you will, uh, in America. So, you know, the the culture and the heritage are still here. It's not as vibrant and not as well known uh, just because of the decline of um, of popular Christianity in the Northeast. Um, but as I uh, am a pastor of a, of a church uh, out, in the, out in the boonies, out in the sticks, as you would say, and uh, when I began to research and prepare to plant the church that we're in about seven or eight years ago, uh, that's really when my, my interest began to be piqued. Um, I had certainly been reading about church history but when I started to dig around at what was actually what had gone on in my backyard, I realized that there was a rich heritage there that virtually nobody knew about. Uh, I wrote a book called Reviving New England back in 2016 that dealt with some of this on a very small level. Um, but there was always a desire for me personally to want to write more. I wanted to my original idea was to to write a full uh, New England history um, and, and chronicle some of the key figures of, of New England history. Uh, and make that a book in and of itself. But then uh, Dustin and I, just after he finished his PhD, uh, he, we began talking and he had actually said to me, you know, I, I really want to work together. I think this would be a great thing for us to work together. And I said, I'd love to work together. Let's let's do something. And then it became the, the back and forth text messages of, well, what do we what do we want to do? You know, and we had thrown around so many different ideas. And then I, I said, well, I've always wanted to write something about the Puritans. And he said, well, that'd be great. And so from that point, I mean, it was very casual, but at that point, we just began to go back and forth and talk about the shape of the book. And, you know, I think the original idea was mine, but Dustin really took that and shaped it and said, well, I think we should make this more popular level. We should focus on certain key figures. And, you know, we, we worked on the, the, the scope of it together. And then really it became a matter of once we identified who we believe the key leaders were, we really just assigned chapters to one another. And it was something very simple as, hey, I'd love to do a book, you know, a chapter on John Elliott. I said, perfect. Why don't you take that one? I'll take this one. And we really just divvied it up. And then as we began to study and write, we were noticing there were overlapping themes. So when you read the book, you'll see there's a lot of information that from chapter to chapter is overlapping. And that was intentional. It was intentional to have their lives play into one another and to really, even though we have nine chapters of nine people, we really wanted that that narrative to to weave together so that you could see a seamless century um, where their lives are interacting and intersecting 
Um, and so we were very careful to make sure that the events that we're picking, you know, we would check with each other. Okay. How did you talk about this event? Oh, I said this. And so we, we communicated back and forth about how that was going to interlay, but really the chapters themselves, I mean, we wanted them to be uh, individual chapters. When you read about, you know, uh, John Winthrop, for example, you know, Dustin writes, you know, from start to finish about his life and really tries to button that up, you know, same thing with my chapters as well. So, um, it was a little bit of a tricky balancing act, but overall, it was a lot of fun. And uh, anybody who is interested in writing, I would encourage you write a book with your best friend. It's uh, it grows you as a person. It grew us as friends. Uh, we had to learn how to be nice to each other when we when we had to critique one another, uh, which is a good exercise. But um, really, just a, an absolute joy uh, to work with my friend and uh, to do a topic that we both love very much. Sounds a bit like getting married, Nate. <laughs> um, but um, uh, Dustin, if we can pass back to you, you mentioned in your earlier article uh, or in your earlier comment, I should say, um, the sense that the, the story of the American Puritans actually begins somewhere else. So uh, as we begin to orientate the discussion now towards the book itself, can you remind us what was the background to this migration of Puritans to the North American uh, continent? Well, it's quite an involved story. Um I really have to go back, Crawford, to uh, the reign and the ascension of Elizabeth I uh, to the throne in uh, 1558, um, when she began to reverse much of her sister Mary's Catholic initiatives. Um, out of that desire came groups of people who wanted the freedom to worship freely outside that which was dictated to them by the state. And so the term Puritan was initially used as a derogatory term. It was not something nice. You did not want to be called uh, a Puritan uh, in about the 1560s. But it, it came to refer to a, a very large contingent of Protestants who can kind of trace their lineage or their spiritual heritage to the Protestant Reformation uh, who were seeking to purify and reform the Church of England. And and so now within that reform movement, there are several different groups. One group only desired mild reforms. Another group wanted uh, to only reform the organizational structure of the church, while then another group completely opposed the Church of England and fully rejected most of the practices of the state-run church. But then there's a fourth group within Puritanism that sought complete separation completely from the Church of England. And it's really from these latter two groups that we find the men and women that we're most interested in or is our focus within the American Puritans. Now, strictly speaking, the first arrivals to New England uh, were not regarded as Puritans, but more as separatists. Um, but their devotion to scripture and sound preaching, reformed doctrine, their visible piety really places them within kind of that realm of Puritanism. And so the separatists in Plymouth fled from England, um, as one said, in order to establish churches of their own in which um, they would much more resemble the invisible church. And so the Church of England, they believed, though technically Protestant in its designation, still did not really value the faithfulness and righteousness and individual liberty that they wanted to emphasize. 
much of England, English religion was um, politicized and they observed various destructions as it were. And so within the church, but they wanted pure churches. And so when the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, became populated with 10,000 people in the 1630s, the leaders sought to perfect that which had been done in England. And so individuals began to arrive on the shores and you have John Winthrop and John Elliott and the individuals that were writing about post pilgrims, post Plymouth, but it's almost the second wave of individuals who are coming to the um, New England shores who are um, undergirding and fueling and fanning the flames of what they had desired to do within uh, the English context. So it, it's quite an involved story, Crawford. Um, we give some of that introduction uh, in our book, uh, in the introduction, just to kind of set the scene or set the table, as it were, uh, for the introdu- for the introduction to the people that we're looking at. That's great. Thanks. Now, Nate, if we can turn to you at this point, obviously the, the, the history that you're describing in this book has, especially in the last couple of years, become quite a controversial history, hasn't it? Uh, and oh, the relationship between um, these early English colonists and Native Americans has become something that we have begun to think about um, perhaps more sharply than we would have done before. Um, how did you approach that question as you thought about how to construct this book? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. We actually get that question uh, not as much in interviews when we talk about the book, but in our interactions with people, uh, especially people who know the history pretty well. Um, we were aware right from the beginning of writing the book that we wanted to write a book that was more popular level. We wanted to write something that was sympathetic. Uh, and when I say sympathetic, I don't mean uh, in my affections. I mean that the style of writing, you know, there is a critical uh, approach to sc- uh, scholarship and there is sympathetic. Um, the works of Ian Murray, he tends to be more sympathetic uh, of his subjects. Uh, it doesn't mean he's not critical, but at the same time, you're trying to to grab the best parts of their of their story, the key parts, um, and bring those to the fore. Certainly, as historians, you never want to be dishonest. You never want to um, try to lead the reader astray. But when you make decisions, and Crawford, you know this. You're a historian. Uh, you know you've written quite a bit on this movement. Um, you know you're not you're not always going to talk about every single detail and every single facet of of a person's life only because you simply can't, you know, the, the context of it uh, doesn't allow for that. Uh, you have to make editorial decisions. And so we made a decision very early on that we weren't going to talk as much um, about the pilgrims and their dealings with uh, the Native Americans. We weren't going to talk as much about um, all the ins and outs of the, of the witch trial, even though we do talk about it. We weren't going to talk about the issue of slavery. Uh, we weren't going to talk about all of the, the challenging and, in many cases, sinful practices uh, even though if you read the last two chapters on Samuel Willard and Cotton Mather, we do talk about the decline and uh, how the movement itself, the Puritan movement in, Amer- in America, had really gone off the rails. And we don't we don't dodge that. Um, but going back to your question about the their original uh, interactions, when the when the pilgrims were ready to come over at that point, they were living in in Holland. They kept on hearing stories about uh, what they were calling savages. They were referring to them as savages because that was the story that they kept on hearing. 
They had never left the continent. They'd never encountered anybody of a different culture before. Um, and so for them, they were actually terrified. They'd only heard the terrible stories and they were terrified of what they were going to encounter. So when they come over, they, they're hopeful. They're also fearful. They're fearing for their lives. They're fearing, they're fearing the worst. When they get here, their first encounter uh, with the natives who were here at the time, their first encounter was actually a violent one. They, uh, they spotted some, they landed their ship, and they sent out a search party to kind of check out what's going on. And they have this, uh, this, this fight, this firefight. Nobody was killed, but that was their first interaction was, was, uh, was not a good one. By the time they actually settle, however, they realize that the people who are here are not savage. They realize that they're not uh, terrible people. And actually, if you read uh, Bradford's history, they actually become friends. Uh, at the, you know, they're calling them Indians. They're, they're, they're becoming friends with them. And it was not uncommon. I don't think most people know this, but it was not uncommon for, for several dozen of them to be in Plymouth Plantation at any given time. Bradford had uh, friends, Indian friends that lived in his house with them. And so their relationship was very good. And they held a truce for about 40 years. After that, after um, uh, some of the, the first generation passed away, um, things became very hostile. There was a, a, a Native American named Medicon who was very angry at uh, just the expanse of uh, the English arriving and really felt like they were taking over the land. Um, there's all kinds of discussion about how that all went down. But, you know, the hostility increased. And by the end of the 1670s and 1680s, things got very bad. And uh, some of the settlers did unconscionable things. Um, after the, the King Philip's War, um, they were taking some of them, some of the, uh, the, the prisoners from this war and selling them into slavery and uh, just really terrible atrocity. Um, it's so bad, in fact, that uh, people in John Owen's uh, homeland and, and John Owen himself were writing letters to these, to these settlers at this point. This is several years after the founding and rebuking them for, for their uh, lovelessness. So, you know, certainly it's not uh, without its flaws. It's not without sinful people doing sinful things. But as Christians, again, if you're looking at this from a purely academic perspective, you're going to see things one way. But as Christians, we understand uh, that every single person is fallen. Every single person has a propensity to do terrible things. And uh, every single person in the Bible, uh, apart from Jesus Christ, uh, every single human uh, is capable of terrible things, and we do see terrible things. And so we never want to sidestep that. Uh, we never want to avoid that. Uh, it's important that we do talk about it. And I think over the course of history, um, these things will get examined even more. But if you read scholarship on the early uh, pilgrims in American history, um, it's well documented. And I think you can you can read about that and sort of decide for yourselves. But uh, again, that was not the goal. Uh, our goal was really just to introduce in a very general sense uh, who these people were. Each chapter is only about 20 pages. And so um, we didn't want to get into a critical history. We really wanted to try to see them for, for who they were at their best, but still not avoid some of the challenges that we see in history. That's great. I think the book does a really nice job of balancing those two things, Nate. Uh, I think it really does make sense of, of what you've just said there. Dustin, if we can turn to you at this point then, um, the book gives us the introduction, who are the American Puritans, and then nine miniature biographies of, of various uh, male and female worthies uh, wh whose names resonate uh, through much of the writing of this period. O of the nine, which of these Puritans most appealed to you? 
Well, obviously, Crawford, it would be the ones I wrote about. Um, um, you know, prior to this, I had heard their names. I knew some small sketches of their life, uh, like Anne Bradstreet. I had read some of her poetry and her beautiful depictions of life on the frontier. Um, but I had not, as it were, delved into or jumped into their lives like you do when you're reading and researching something of this nature. It's quite difficult to write a popular level book because you have to do, for me, I had to do much more research, um, much deeper research because I had to understand their lives myself in order to put it into a language that could communicate just to um, an ordinary person outside of the academic sphere. And so I looked at, and now we're revealing because we never reveal in the book who we wrote about, but I wrote about John Winthrop. I wrote about John Elliott. I also did um, Anne Bradstreet and Thomas Hooker. Um, probably out of the four that I look at, John Eliot really emerged for me as one of the most important figures during this period. Uh, in fact, it would be my desire at some point um, when other projects uh, are finished to look at a fuller, more complete bi biographical account of John Eliot himself. Um, Eliot was a colonial pastor uh, who possessed an ardent call. Uh, to go to his neighbors and share the gospel. Uh, he admits himself as not a great statesman or not a great intellectual. But then you look at his life and you see what he did and you think, how could he not see himself as an intellectual when he did these things? Um, he describes himself as a shrub in the wilderness. But really, Eliot is a preeminent example of an individual's dealings with the Native Americans that is something that history seems to have forgotten. Uh, he's a faithful pastor in Roxbury, Massachusetts for 40 years, um, but he has this endeavor and this desire to spread the gospel to the Native Americans. Um, and so therefore, he is convinced, like William Tyndale was convinced, that if people are going to know Christ, they must have the Bible in their own language. Well, the Native American Algonquin language was not even a written language at the time. And so Eliot set about to create a grammar for the Algonquin language, several books of Indian grammar. He created an alphabet, and then he created several books of grammar and dictionaries using various translators. And then he set about to translate the whole Bible into the Native American language for the sake of sharing the gospel with the Indians. And so Eliot eventually publishes, after 10 years of work, he publishes the very first Bible printed in the colonies during this period in Algonquin. To me, that was an amazing realization that Eliot and some and most of these others, they didn't look at these individuals as 
second class citizens, but they look at these individuals as well as others as souls in need of Christ who sets about to translate the whole Bible and work themselves basically to death in 10 years, producing a Bible in a language for a group of people that they don't have some affection and some love for in regard to taking the gospel to them. And so Elliot became a a really great figure for me. Uh, Again, I would love to explore him more. I could get into how he set up Indian praying towns, as they were known, several missionary outposts along uh, Massachusetts and other states or not states, but colonies during that period, how he set those kind of missionary stations up, how he learned Algonquin, how he preached to the Native Americans. It, it's just a beautiful story of a pastor who loves people. And so preeminently, he's he's my man, uh, if you will, of this particular period. That's fascinating. And, and Nate, who is your man or woman in this list of nine mini biographies? Which which of these characters were you most drawn to as you wrote about them? Sure. So, yeah, the other five are the ones that I uh, wrote about. Uh, John, uh, sorry, my, my brain's foggy this morning. Uh, William Bradford, uh, John Cotton, uh, Thomas Shepard, uh, Samuel Willard, and then Cotton Mather. Just an aside, though, uh, I, I have the, the text messages, the conversations that Dustin and I were having uh, as he was discovering just how much you love John Elliott and uh, just the, the overwhelming joy that he uh, found when he was studying these things. He would, he would, I'd be sitting there doing my work and he would send me a text message, something, you know, in all capital letters, you know, let me share this with you. Did you see this? Did you see that? And he's sending me screenshots of books and, and writings. And (laughs) I was so exciting. And it was both of us were giddy just discovering all these different things together. It was like we were finding buried treasure, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's it's Dustin's joy and love for Elliot is is palpable. Uh, for me, I, I early on had a love for John Cotton. Uh, John Cotton was a faithful pastor um, in Boston. I mean, he was already preeminent before he arrived on the shores, and so he had uh, was a nonconformist minister in Boston, Lincolnshire, um, and did that for twenty years, and really was kind of the last uh, the last standing nonconformist pastor before being exiled, uh, before Archbishop Laud uh, went after him. So by the time he gets to America, he's already famous or his reputation precedes him. And uh, Thomas uh, Hooker, as well as John Cotton and another one named Samuel Stone, they all arrived together. Uh, And it was like the big three. I mean, as soon as they step off the boat, I mean, everybody, all the colonists were, were totally enamored with them. They were, they were so happy that they had shown up there. They weren't, they weren't exactly sure that they were going to come. So when, when your three favorite, you know, big time pastors show up in your town, uh, it's exciting. And so John Cotton had another 20 year ministry in, in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, uh, wrote quite a, a bit of information, uh, literature, um, was really the, the spearhead behind the Congregationalist movement. And uh, actually, Crawford, you probably know this, but uh, when John Owen was reevaluating his own positions, uh, he became persuaded of congregationalism after reading John Cotton's The Keys to the Kingdom of Heaven. So uh, even just the uh, the interaction, the relationship between John Owen and John Cotton uh, and even John Owen writes uh, after John Cotton dies, writes a 175 page defense 
of his theology. So uh, their connection is very strong. But if I could even just sort of jump over for a second, uh, the work I did on Cotton Mather, I mean, I think Cotton Mather is probably one of the more important figures. He comes at the end of this period. He's really, uh, Rick Kennedy wrote a book on him called uh, The First American Evangelical. Everything sort of changes with Cotton Mather. But the reason I enjoyed Cotton Mather, uh, again, a Boston pastor, um, he's the grandson, by the way, of John Cotton, but um, Cotton Mather is probably one of the most misunderstood figures in American church history, perhaps even all of church history, um, and really is uh, villainized and vilified even now, uh, even in current movements. And so to really go back and look at his life, I read every single biography I could find. Um, I think on my shelf, I've got nine or 10 uh, critical and scholastic ac- uh, biographies about Cotton Mather. And really tried to evaluate, okay, what, what's the worst that he really did? How bad is this man? Because you hear all the terrible things about him. He was, I mean, the devil incarnate, according to some people. But when you actually read uh, critical evaluation of his life and critical evaluation of his work, you realize that he's a very, a very human, very flawed, very lovely man who, who loved his congregation. His congregation loved him. When he passed away, when he died, there were four funeral sermons preached in his honor, and people were purchasing uh, mezzotint uh, copies of his picture and putting them, uh, the pictures, in their living rooms uh, all over Boston, all over America. So um, he was a well-loved person who was later slandered throughout the course of history. So again, uh, in the chapter, I don't sidestep the mistakes he makes. I don't sidestep uh, the fact that he had his sins and his flaws. He was clay-footed. Um, but really, he's he's a very human, Pauline-like um, example of a Christian. And he struggles with his own depravity, writes about it you know, extensively, but really has a desire to honor Christ as best he can, uh, even though he is so flawed and sinful, but he does love the Lord dearly. And uh, so he was a fascinating character. Uh, I'd love to write about him in the future, Lord willing. Uh, but eager to see more people examine his life. And I think that there's a huge movement right now. There's a project called the Mather Project. Uh, Jan Steverman, uh, Reiner uh, Smolinski are spearheading this project to really re-examine Cotton Mather. And what they're finding, even in the scholastic community, is that he's been misread. And uh, they've written a book. Uh, they've republished his Biblia Americana. It's a bu- full Bible commentary. They've republished that, and they've also published a volume called Essays and Reappraisal, which takes uh, several key scholars and evaluates aspect of Mather's life and his doctrine and his ministry. And um, really, the findings are, are quite revealing. So I'm excited for the future of what, what the, the world looking at Cotton Mather with fresh eyes will be like. Well, that's, that, that's exciting to hear about, and uh, I look forward to seeing how that project develops too. But for now... Conscious of taking up a lot of your time today, Dustin Benj and Nate Pikovich, thank you very much for going on to the show and talking about your new book, The American Puritans, just published by Reformation Heritage Books 2020. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.